Good morning again. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, uh, as you many, many of you know, and I hope that I convey, I'm, I'm very committed to preaching, speaking through God's Word. And when I come to a book of Scripture, when we come to a book together, we let God speak to us and He be the one who sets the agenda. So we go through His books and hear what He has to say, not the message that I can come up with out of my creativity, but what God conveys to us in His Word. So I'm very committed to that. I love that, preaching that way, going through books of the Bible, hearing from God. I have a confession to make. I was not looking forward to this one as we were going through. We've been studying through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I really like these books, but this chapter, Ezra 10, is a very hard chapter to talk about. In fact, as I was thinking a couple months ago, what books of the Bible, where should we go next? Where should we hear from God next in his word? And I was praying through it, thinking of it, going through some possibilities. As I was thinking about it, I kept being drawn to Ezra and Nehemiah. I kept thinking, this is good. The only problem was chapter 10. Because I kept thinking, I was like, these books are about how God's people were away from where they could worship God, but then they came back. Just like how we were away from church for a little last year, and we've, we've come back here to worship him. But not everyone's come back. We're coming back in, in stages. It's gradual. That's just what's happening there. But there is Ezra chapter 10. Oh, these books are great. We don't talk about it often very much in church. But there is Ezra chapter 10. These books give us great encouragement about what it looks like to commit to God. But there is chapter 10. But even in spite of that, I was like, no, no, God, there there are too many good things in Ezra and Nehemiah to brush it aside just because of this chapter. I think that this chapter may be one of the the hardest ones in the Bible because there's some strange things that go on and some things that almost kind of run against what we see in other passages of Scripture. And it's really hard to put those things together. But as we've been studying through the books and we arrive at this chapter, it it made a bit more sense than it did when I was looking at it on the whole. Because this is a chapter dealing with the effects of sin, of turning against what God has said. And when we talk about sin, sin and rebellion against God, it leaves a mess. It leaves a mess in our lives. It leaves a mess in the world around us. And it also shows to us just how difficult, how hard it is to repent and turn away from sin and put our faith and trust in God, rely on Him, live for Him, instead of living in sin. The truth is, life always doesn't work out in a way that there's clear black and white. There is absolute truth. I'm not, I'm not denying that. I'm saying that in our everyday life, knowing exactly the right thing to do is sometimes very difficult. Following God can be hard, especially when we're talking about turning from sin. Now, on the one hand, living for God, living Christian life, it's very easy And it's easy because we don't have to earn favor with God. Our whole message is there's nothing we can do to earn our position before God, but it's based on what Christ did for us. In Christ alone, we have our salvation. But the faith is also difficult. It's a difficult life because if we know Christ, it changes everything else about our life and how we follow God. In our chapter today, we're going to see what repentance, turning away from sin, turning toward God, what that looks like in action, and will give us some lessons about how we can do that as well. We'll discover that this morning. Very briefly, let, let's remind ourselves, though, where we are. We're in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So this is in the Old Testament dealing with God's people, the Israelites. These people had a special relationship with God. 
If they followed him, if they believed in him, put him first, obeyed what he said, that they could stay in one particular promised land. Unfortunately, they started worshiping other gods, and so God sent them away into exile. But after 70 years, they start coming back to the promised land, and that's what these books are about. They're coming back to the land, to the place to worship God. At this point in these books, we're in the second major group of people to return. They're led by a man named Ezra, who's a priest, describes someone who knows God's word. He's been given a letter by the ruler over all this area, the Persian king, that he is allowed to use money to repair God's temple and to restore God-honoring worship. And he goes, he comes back, he's very excited for that task. But the last time we were in this book, he discovered a terrible secret, that there had been sin, rebellion against God among the people who were there. And he responded to that by mourning that sin, confessing it to God and then repenting and turning from it. And that brings us to where we are today. And this chapter is a little longer and confusing, so we're going to kind of read it in chunks. So before we look at it, though, let's pray and ask God to be with us in our time in his word. Lord, thank you for your word. That is not something that a person could have made up and written because there are, there are things that are hard and challenging remind us how greater you are than how we are and how terrible our sin and faithlessness is, how it can mess up the order that you intended. I pray, God, that as we look at your word, we would see our need to confess sin and repent and turn from it. May you show us how we can do that in our own lives. And in this passage about sin and repentance, may we see you clearly in your great grace and love toward us. To borrow words from John the Baptist, I pray you would increase in this time, even in a confusing passage like this. May, may sin, distraction, ourselves, everything else decrease in light of your glory and grace. May we see you clearly and learn what it looks like to follow you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Now, if you're using the outline, I wanted to review a little bit about what's happening here. And these are, this first part is something we talked about two weeks ago. We talked about what is the problem, what's wrong, what's happening in God's people. And the problem is the Israelites are showing faithlessness. They're not exercising faith in God. They're not living in a way that reflects their relationship with him. Specifically, what they have not done is they have not separated from the despicable practices of the people who were around them. We read when we were last in Ezra in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And in this passage, uh, some officials approach Ezra, and this is what they tell him about what's happening. They say, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And they list the peoples who are there in the lands. And then in verse 2, they say, they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. The problem is this holy seed, holy race has mingled and mixed with sin. And we read that, we talked about how it seems on the surface his problem is that they're marrying the wrong people, that they're marrying the the wrong race. But that's not it. The reality is the people are demonstrating faithlessness. It's not about their race. It's about their faith in God. The Old Testament had talked about this in the book of Deuteronomy. 
Moses, and this is God's law, said, you shall not intermarry with them, the other peoples who are in the land. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. God tells his people, if you intermarry with those other ones who are living in the land, the reason you shouldn't do that is they will turn you away from following me. They will lead you to worship other gods. And if you do that, it would destroy your unique identity. It would destroy your identity as my people, as God's people. The call that he gave them to be faithful to him alone. And as we talked about, that's exactly what happened. God's people did intermarry with those around them. The book of Psalms tells us they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and they learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. By mixing with these other nations and learning their religions, they demonstrated that they were faithless and that led to their exile from the land. They were acting as if they did not have faith in God. They were acting without faith in him. One scholar explained the problem this way. He said that well, these mixed marriages would produce children who were not fully committed to Israel's faith because in this case, they would have been influenced by their mother's idolatrous beliefs. This compromise would lead them right back to where they were before the exile, wholesale unfaithfulness to God, wholehearted embracing of false religions. So I want to emphasize that. The problem here is not that they were marrying these people who were in a different people group. The problem is their beliefs, their faith. They would have led them astray. They would have led them in a direction that God didn't want his people to go. And God had told his people that they should worship him first and foremost, live for him. The way that God desired them to go is a way that does not fit with the rest of the world. They're to live holy, separate lives. It reminds us that if we're following God, we will live differently. If we're following God, it will impact the decisions we make from who we marry to how we live out our faith in our community. So that's what had happened. And we talked about how Ezra responded by prayer, mourning, confessing, repenting from sin. But now let's look at our passage. And then at the end of it, we'll talk about some application for us today. So in the passage, we see confession, confession of sin, and we also see repentance, turning away from sin. The passage shows us confession and repentance. In the first part of the passage, Ezra will continue to pray, and the people around him will confess of sin. So let's look at chapter 10, the book of Ezra, verses 1 through 6. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping, casting himself down before the house of God, there was a very great assembly of men, women, and children. They gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And one man, Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, he addressed Ezra. He said, we have broken faith with our God. We have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law. 
Arise, for it is your task. We are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose. He made the leading priest and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. And then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God. He went into the chamber of a man named Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. He was neither eating bread nor drinking water. He was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. We talked last time about Ezra's example of mourning, and so he's continuing to do that here. But his genuine, his genuine mourning, his genuine brokenness over sin inspires people to join him. It moves them to want to come to God as well. His extreme distress stirs their hearts. Yes, we need to be right with God. He's praying, weeping, he's casting, throwing himself down on the ground. And this is his genuine grief. And others see it and they feel his priorities. They share his revulsion that, yes, we should not be doing these things against God. And his actions sound dramatic to us, but that's how people showed grief at that time. The very next time we're in these books, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 1, and Nehemiah will do something similar. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is what Ezra does. He does this example of mourning, brokenness before God. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't tell the people, he doesn't force them to do something. He doesn't say, you must do this right now. No, he just mourns broken before God, and that inspires others around him to say, yes, we, we should do this. We should be right with our Lord. And so a very great assembly gathers around him. A large number of people are brought to repentance. They're weeping over sin. And one man named Shechaniah, he speaks for the gathering, and he addresses this sin and this issue. And this is pretty bold of him, because we're told who his father is. It says he's Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel. And if you've read the rest of the chapter, you'll see at the end of chapter 10, there's a long list of names of these people who sinned in this way. And, and don't worry, let me relieve you of your burdens right now. I'm not going to read through that whole list here. But one of the names in that list, in verse 26, is Jehiel, Shechaniah's father. So Shechaniah is saying, yes, my family has done this too. We have sinned in this way. He's the first person brave enough to confess the sin of his own family. He admits, we have broken faith. We have been unfaithful and showed faithlessness toward God. But he also wisely recognizes that there is hope for forgiveness. They confess their sins. I love that phrase, the end of verse 2. Even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. It's the same for us today. We have hope for salvation, hope for a right relationship with God by confessing sin and calling out to Him. We're able to do that because of the work of Christ on our behalf. We don't earn our place before God. There's nothing we can do to fix what we've broken, but Christ has fixed it on our behalf. So if we confess sin and then we turn from sin and believe in his work for us, trust in him alone, then we too can have hope for forgiveness. This forgiveness is based on God's agreement with us, which another word for that is a covenant. And in his case, his hope is based on the covenant that God has with his people, the special agreement and relationship that they have. He admits our sin has broken God's covenant, but 
He wants to restore it. He wants to act in a way to bring them back with God. And so what he says they're going to do is he says the people will commit to divorce their foreign pagan wives. The word is put, send away. It's really an odd term. Same with the word marriage. Some have suggested maybe they're not real or not official marriages, but regardless, he's saying we're going to push these people outside of our community. He seems to suggest that Ezra was the one who counseled them to do this. He says, based on the counsel of my Lord. Maybe Ezra had read through Deuteronomy 7 and told them that they should not be doing this. And he also says there's others who are saying it. He calls them those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And we talked about that before. That's such a wonderful phrase of the response we should have to God's word. It's stronger than just respect. It's a holy reverence for God's word that, yes, what God has said, we should do. And the last thing this man says is, Ezra, you are the one who needs to do this. He challenges him to do this task. It's his duty, responsibility. It's in his hands. Ezra needs to come up with a plan to address the people's sin. So even in this terrible situation, there's a good result. Ezra mourns this sin. He shows godly grief. And the people come to him and say, we need you to help us get out of this. Please help us have a right relationship with God. And Ezra is told, you need to be strong. Take courage. Do what God has called you to do. This is a common phrase in Scripture telling us if we're going to do what God has said, we need to be strong, to take courage. Joshua 1.7 says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. God calls his people to be strong and courageous. And so Ezra responds, he makes those who are there take an oath that they will do this. And then he continues to fast and mourn over their sin. But there's something different we read in that verse 6 if you look at it. He goes into the chamber of somebody's house. So before he was doing it in public, but now he continues to do it in private, showing us that he's the same man in public or in private. He wasn't putting on a show trying to get the people to do something. What he did in public, he also did in private. Fasting, prayer, humbling himself before God, that was his natural response to sin. It's how he approached God when he wanted his help. A few weeks ago, we talked about when he led the people from the Babylon and Persia to come to the promised land, he spent time in fasting and prayer before that as well. So as he spends this time, now all the men of the community are told to gather, and they're told they need to separate from those who are leading them into sin. And they express a commitment to repentance. So let's look at verses 7 through 11 now. It says, And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited. He himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Verse 9 says, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month. All the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased 
the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, to do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. So a proclamation is issued. All the men are to come to Jerusalem, the heads of the families. This is a special gathering. They were to be there three times a year, but this is a special event. And anyone who refused to participate, who didn't come within the three days, they said would be banned outright, excommunicated, excluded, and separated if the leaders so ordered. So they gather together. We're told it's the ninth month, and we read it sometimes with our perspective. We think ninth month, okay, that's, uh, that's September. So not the best time to have a big outdoor meeting, but it shouldn't be too bad. But they're not on our calendar. They're using their calendar, the Hebrew calendar. The ninth month would have been December. And yes, they're in Israel, which doesn't get as cold as here, but it's still winter, still the early rainy season. And we're pictured with a very dramatic scene. The weather is even adding to the drama. All the people are gathered before the temple. The people are trembling because they know they've sinned before God, and there's heavy rain pouring down on them. They're probably shivering in the cold. They're greatly distressed by what is happening. They know they've sinned, and the weather seems to be reminding them, yes, you are doing something wrong. All the drama of this, it it reminds me of seeing in a movie or something where the rain adds to the drama. What popped in my mind was the Lord of the Rings movie, The Two Towers, where they have this final battle at Helm's Deep. They build it up, all this tension, and then it pours down rain as they start to fight. That's what's happening here. The people are wrestling with their sin before God, and the rain is pouring down on them. Ezra speaks to the people, and he says, the exiles have returned. We are back in the promised land. We sinned. We rejected God. He sent us away. Our sin has been dealt with. Now we're back, and now you are increasing. You are adding to our guilt. He's implying, look, God now has every right to send us away again. This is what happened the first time, and you're doing it again. So he tells them, you need to make confession." Or your translation may say, you need to honor God. You need to worship God with your life. And that's the appropriate response to sin. Not hiding it, but confessing it and honoring God in it. We see this in Scripture. In the book of Joshua, a man named Achan sinned. And Joshua said to him, my son, give glory to the Lord. Or it's the same words, make confession to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. In scripture, these ideas of confessing sin to God and worshiping him, they're very tied closely together. They're intimately linked. One scholar said, only the sinner who confesses can truly praise God and do his will. If we confess sin to God, then we can worship him rightly. And this attitude of confessing sin goes before God acting on our behalf. The book of Leviticus, God says, if they confess their iniquity or their sin and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, if they confess their sin, then I will remember my covenant, the covenant I have with Jacob, with Isaac, with Abraham. I will remember their covenant. I will remember their land. If they confess, God will remember and act. So Ezra challenges them to do it. And that's what the people do. They confess and they set up a time to look at this. 
verses 12 through 17 in our passage. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do what you have said. But the people are many. It is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all who are in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. And only four people, only Jonathan, son of Ashael, Jehaziah, son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai the Levite supported them. And so verse 16 tells us, then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they have come to an end of all the men who had married foreign women. The people are united in their desire to seek God. They want to seek him and not suffer the consequences of his wrath. In the book of Chronicles, uh, King says that. He says, now it is in my heart to make a covenant and agreement with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. This is what the people desire, so they admit their guilt. They have a plan to solve their problem. They acknowledge that they have transgressed. We have sinned greatly, and it's their duty to do what Ezra has said. They want to be committed to God. This is how God's people should respond, together in unity, seeking God. They do this in the book of Exodus. All the people answered Moses and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. That's what they're doing here. They're saying, yes, Ezra, you are right. What you have said, we will do. They're committing to change and to act. And then they just point out that there's one minor problem that they have to deal with, which is an, an honest one. They said there's many of them who've been involved in this. It's extremely guilty. So they need time to sort through this. They're willing to respond, but it's a lot of people. It's going to be very complicated. And they also have a very human emotion. I, I love that. People are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. They're, they're standing outside in, in winter in the rain. They quite honestly say, well, is there a better way that we can do this? They ask if their officials can stand in their place and represent them and consider each case individually. And so they decide to do that. Some are opposed. Verse 15 says that, that. Why they were opposed, Scripture doesn't really tell us. Maybe they were some of those who had uh, wives who were not seeking the Lord, uh, but names are so common it's hard to know that for sure. Or maybe they just didn't like this idea. Maybe they thought, no, we need to fix it today, rain and all. But only four people disagreed with it. The implication is there's overwhelming support. Thousands were behind this, reminding us it's rare to have 100% agreement even among God's people. So they have this plan, but unfortunately, this won't be the only time that we'll talk about that in these books. This issue would arise again. But for now, they gather their authorities and leaders together. They took about three months to investigate, to interview people, and to deal with this issue. And the rest of the chapter we're not really going to read it. It's a list of the names of the people, the men who had committed this sin. We talked about last time we were in Ezra that in the grand scheme of themes, it's kind of short. 
There's only 110, 111 names out of the thousands of people who are there. So either it's a summary of the people who did it, or maybe it's they understand how serious a problem it is, and they want to stop it before it's too late. There's just parts of three verses I want to highlight. Verse 18 says, there were found some of the sons of the priest who had married foreign women, including some of the sons of Jeshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Some of his sons were involved in this. And so verse 19 says, they pledged themselves to put away their wives. Their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. And then we have the list of all the names, and verse 44 tells us all these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. All had been involved in this sin. Priests, Levites, all Israel. So they start with the leaders, the priests, and they work their way down. The families bring a guilt offering for each person, an expression of commitment to God, of trusting in God alone, relying on Him for forgiveness. And these groups, these leaders, considered each case individually. We're not told many details. We're just told that it happened. Perhaps maybe if they talked to the families, they found out maybe uh, the wife had decided to worship the one true God. Maybe the children worshiped Him as well. But again, we're not really told what happened. And maybe if they did, they were allowed to stay. But the text tells us that even those who had children were not excused or exempted from this. And if they were turned away, it's not like they were kicked down the street. They probably went back to their family who lived in the area. And that's the the passage. That's the text. That's where it ends there. It's a really abrupt ending. Uh, that's why I think it's important we read Ezra and Nehemiah together because they flow together. But it's, it ends kind of suddenly. It's a really weird passage of Scripture. So what do we do with it? How do we respond to it? I think first and foremost, it's showing us that the Israelites' greatest threat, the one that was the most difficult for them to deal with, wasn't the people on the outside who were trying to stop them from building the temple, but it was those on the inside who weren't following God and leading the people astray. So let's talk about kind of three major applications or implications that we see in in this text or that we should discuss based on it. The first one is they talk a lot about setting aside, separating couples. So we should talk about that divorce in God's sight should be rare, should be rare. So we have this event where it, it seems to imply that 110, 111 people all of a sudden divorced their wives and sent their kids away. Something that we should know about God's word is this is telling us something that actually happened. The Bible tells us what happened. It doesn't always tell us whether it was the right or wrong action or whether it was the best response. It tells us this is what they did. And we have to take a moment to really consider this from how it appears when we read it. When we look at it it, from the outside, it seems like a really harsh response. They just said, okay, wife, you have to go and you take the kids with you. The children didn't do anything. They were completely innocent in this, but they have to go as well. We should really feel the difficulty of this. We shouldn't brush over it and say, oh, surely there's an explanation we get to. There are things. I will talk about it in just a minute, but we really need to feel that this is a difficult, this is a hard passage of Scripture. And we should see this is what happens when people sin and turn against God. There is brokenness that impacts generations. So we shouldn't brush it aside. This is a sad day for the Israelites. But let's try to wrap our head 
around what is happening here. The focus on this passage, it talks about Ezra, it lists people's names, but the focus is on the community of God's people. There is a community focus. Their goal is to protect the community's commitment to God. And in Scripture, it has more of a broad view. It talks about individuals, but it has a broad view of people and people groups. And in the ancient world, and frankly, like a lot of places today, who your parents worshipped, the God that they served, the church they went to, that was the God that you worshipped. Now, in the only time it's been different is now in the Western world, particularly like 20th, 21st century, it's been a little different. But in most of the world, who your parents worship is who you worship. And that's weird to us in our culture. Oh, I, I pick where I go. I pick what I do. But that's just not the case in most of the world. Family determined your religion. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's the way it is. And that's the way it was then. So if these women were from families that were worshiping other gods, it's more than likely they would continue to do so. And it's equally as likely they would teach their kids to worship those other gods as well. And that is the problem that's happening here. They're teaching their kids, the next generation, to worship gods other than the true God. So that's what's happening here. That's why they respond that way. And then also note, they took the time to consider each case. They didn't say blanketly, okay, if your wife's not pure Israel, then out she goes. No, they had time to sit down with each people. I mean, maybe they stood, I don't know. But they gathered each person together and took time to ask questions. And so that implies that if someone was committed to God, they were allowed to stay. Because remember, those who were outside God's people were allowed to worship him. Last year, we talked about one of the greatest examples of that, a woman named Ruth, who was a part of the people of Moab, who should not have been someone who was worshiping God, but she's still committed to follow him. In the book of Ezra, we've seen that those who worship God were welcomed to know him. We've looked at this verse a lot just because it tells us so much. It talks about a Passover celebration that the people of Israel returned from exile ate, but also everyone who joined them, who separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. It wasn't based on who your parent was, but whether you were separating yourself from sin to worship God. So the passage is really telling us those who were divorced or sent away were those who were not worshiping God. That's what's happening here. But we have to acknowledge this is a historically unique case. There's really no justification for taking a similar action today. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about what the Bible says about divorce, but God is not the biggest fan of it. The word he uses in the book of Malachi is hates. He hates divorce. He only gives two biblical grounds for it. Adultery, cheating on a spouse, or abandonment, leaving someone. And so now, as followers of Christ, we're told how to approach this situation of believers and unbelievers married. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, then he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved because God has called you to peace. Saying that being married to someone who doesn't know Jesus is not automatically a cause for divorce. Instead, Scripture tells those who 
believers who are married to unbelievers, to persevere in loving their spouse. The book of 1 Peter is speaking to wives, but it's really for husbands as well. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. God's challenge, if a believer is married to unbeliever, is to persevere, to show love and grace. Now, those verses, though, do seem to imply that, uh, that a couple was married and then one of them became a believer. That seems to be the implication there. And so it's saying, if you find yourself in that place to persevere in love as far as it depends on you. But maybe your case is different. Maybe you or someone you know has made the choice. I say I love Jesus, but I'm going to choose to marry someone who does not love them. Again, you're married then, so these things would be true in that case as well. It should continue to persevere in love. And that was not a wise decision, but it's not that God has rejected you forever. You have not permanently failed God or not permanently broken off from him. Seek him and rely upon him. And by the same token, this really isn't a passage about divorce, but I know that that can be very traumatic. And so if you have been divorced, I would just encourage you to cling to God and depend on him. Rely on him because he shows you love and grace and he will never leave you nor forsake you. So even though this passage we're reading is about divorce, the testimony of scripture for us is that divorce should be rare. This passage also teaches us something else, though. It teaches us that if divorce should be rare, then marriage should be about God. Marriage should be about God. That's what Ezra is saying to the people. You need to be married to people who are going to lead you to worship God, to know him better. Jesus himself talked about this. In the book of Matthew, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from beginning, made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus says marriage is meant to be together, is meant to honor God. Probably the passage that illuminates this the most, though, is what Paul will write in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He describes that for more, and then he says this, this thing, marriage between a husband and wife, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Saying marriage is supposed to be in God's intention. It's supposed to be permanent and special, like our relationship with God. As Jesus is committed to us, God's intention is for spouses to be committed to one another. In our culture around us, we often talk about marriage like it's about love or your feelings, but marriage is really supposed to be a picture of God's love and his commitment toward us. And so if we're married, we should ask ourselves, does our marriage reflect that picture with how we love one another? Are we demonstrating how God also loves us? But if you're not married, then the message of Ezra chapter 10, I I hope, screams off the page to you. An important warning. Do not marry an unbeliever because this is the pain that comes when we pursue 
that path. Paul talks about how great marriage is there, but he also says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? A believer marrying an unbeliever is unfair. It's difficult for both of the people who are involved. I talked, last time we talked about this, about an article I read that talks about the results that come from this. It was Tim Keller's wife, Kathy Keller, talking from experience of being a pastor's wife, what she had seen. And what she saw is that when believers marry unbelievers, one of three things happens. Either one, the believer pushes Christ to the margin of their life. They, they care more about their spouse, they push Jesus to the side. Number two, they push the spouse to the side, and the spouse doesn't feel loved and respected. Or number three, there's just stress. Constant stress that leads the marriage to break apart or stress that can lead to seasons of loneliness. If you're not married, feelings of love, they will come and they will go. But if you do not share the same commitments, what is going to make that marriage last? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And the same is true for a husband for a wife. But it says if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. Saying you, you can marry whoever you want, but what's essential is that they have a relationship with the Lord. Our marriages are to be in the Lord with believers because marriage is supposed to be about God. But if somewhere along the line we're not following God's intention, whether in that or some other issue in our life, that brings us to really the main lesson of this passage and the title of the sermon that Repentance, turning toward God, is hard. It is very hard. Sin is serious. When we reject God, God expects us to respond to sin with complete separation, without compromise. But repentance, turning away from sin, that can be messy. There's a lot of details to figure out. Remember in our passage they said, yes, we want to do this, but we're going to need a couple months to work all of this out. Sin corrupts everything it touches. It's not easy to fix it or to move past it. But if we're going to have the true, genuine repentance of sin that God calls us for, then we'll show full confession. We'll have sincere sorrow. We'll have a complete break with our sin. We'll fully confess our sin. We'll be sorrowful, mourn for it, and completely break from it. And if we don't do that, then that's not genuine repentance. I think one of the best passages of Scripture about this is a psalm from King David. He had committed horrible sin, adultery and murder. But he writes this prayer to God because he's recognized what he has done. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He asks for God's mercy. He knows he needs washing and cleansing. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He wants to be right with God. He doesn't want to sin anymore. And in verse 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
This is repentance, a broken heart before God. This is what we see in our passage with Ezra and the Israelites. They are broken before their Lord. And this brokenness, this desire for renewal and cleansing is what we need if we're repenting from sin. Neither David nor the Israelites here offer excuses. They don't say, well, they were the only people here when we got here. They don't say they're, they're really nice to us when we got here. No. No, they give no excuses. They say, yes, this was wrong. And the same with David here. He said, the sacrifice God of our broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Following God will cost all that we have and all that we are. If we commit to follow God, our life will not be the same on the other side of that. And if we know God, then we will get sin out of our lives by whatever means are necessary. The passage we read before the offering talks about this. It says, Godly grief and mourning produces repentance, turning from sin that leads to salvation without regret. But on the other hand, just worldly grief, I'm sad that I did this, that produces death. Godly grief will lead to repentance, a change, and then we can have salvation without regret. If we're just sad about it and we don't make a change, that will only produce death. So what should we do? If we know that we've rejected God, we've done something against his word, what is the response he calls us for? We're like the dramatic response the Israelites have. We need to make a clean break with sin. We need to call out to God, beg for his mercy, and then get rid of the sin by whatever means necessary. If it's an issue of lust of our eyes, something we're looking at, then don't look at that thing anymore. Create a way that you're not able to look at it. If the problem is something you're thinking in your brain, then fill your time with service or something else so you don't have the time to think about that. If an issue is with something you're drinking or something you're eating, then get that thing out of your house. Make a clean break with sin. Do whatever it takes. Half efforts are not good enough. I was actually reminded by this, but not one, by two people yesterday, so I, I feel like I have to mention it. Uh, yesterday was a church work day, and so thank you for those of you who were here working. And uh, one of my jobs I was assigned to was to help with weeding, particularly around the trees and, and bushes on the property. And I have to confess, um, I haven't done that very much in, in my life, so I don't know a lot about it. So I was learning from others as I was doing it. I thought we were just pulling up plants, and then I thought there was little grass to pull and big grass. But then I learned it's not actually big grass. It's actually wild onions. So there's actually a bulb down underneath. And so to get it up, you have to dig in the dirt a little bit and get the bulb out. Because if you don't do that, if you just pull the top of the grass, it's going to grow right back. I think some of you, by your responses, are seeing the application here. If we're going to respond to sin like they are, they, they cut the relationships off. They removed it from their life because if they left it there like those wild onions they're just going to grow right back again brothers and sisters here's the truth either we do the hard work of removing sin from our lives or god is going to do that work for us and that is a scary thought when god starts changing your life to fit his purposes it's much better much healthier for you to make that decision and do it yourself rather than god act in his timing and in his way let us not harbor secret sins because they will not be secret for long. It is worth it to remove sin, to follow God closely. 
But let me end with some good news. The good news is that God is willing, he is able, he's the only one who is able to help us do this. He has always been willing to do this. In the Old Testament, a king, King Solomon, asked God, he was praying to God and knowing that God would answer him. And this is what Solomon prayed. Solomon said, if your people, if they repent, if they turn from sin with all their heart and all their soul, even when they're in exile, the land of their enemies, oh God, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea. Maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. If they repent with all their heart, God, forgive them. And God does. But if you want more evidence of that, in the New Testament, Christ says he's the one involved in this. The Apostle John writing says, if we confess our sins, then he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The wrong application to take from this message is, oh, I've got some work to do to change things. The right application is, God, I need your help. You have a lot of work to do in my life, and I need to depend on you. If you don't know God, though, the first thing you need to do is is make that initial commitment to follow him, to turn away from your sin, repent as these people did, and believe and trust in his work on your behalf. Whether you're watching online or here, I pray that you'll talk to somebody about what that means and what that looks like. You need to turn from sin to Jesus, the one who paid the way for you to have a right relationship with God. His resurrection from the grave gives you new life as well. But if we do know him, then we're to model like the Israelites here. We're to continue repenting, turning from sin. We're to continue seeking to worship God because he is worthy of that kind of life and that kind of praise.